Right On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome back to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 14th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Roberta Radovich. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. So we are um, here in the studio with uh, one of Bloomington's notables. <laughs> um, if you're in the listening audience today, if you haven't heard uh, Marietta Simpson perform, you are really, really missing a, an incredible treat. She's very talented. You did not hail from Indiana, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to tell us a little bit more about where you come from, where your people come from? Well, my mother is from a little town in West Virginia called North Fork, West Virginia. It's near Bluefield. Uh, and my father's from originally from Pittsburgh, but grew up in Washington, D.C., where they met each other. And then they moved um, as young newlyweds to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we were all born in Philadelphia, and that's where I grew up. Uh, went to school there went to undergraduate school there. From there, I moved to Binghamton, New York, which is a small town. Um, did my under my, excuse me, master's degree there. From there, went to a young artist program in Houston, Texas. Um, there's a program there called the Houston Opera Studio, which is a young artist program. So I did that, and from the Houston, um, uh, Houston Opera Studio, I kind of launched into my professional career and uh, started singing around with orchestras and opera companies and that sort of thing. And um, that's kind of how it all got started. So, uh, and at the same time that I was starting my professional career, became a single mom. So I was raising a child and having a professional career at the same time. So. Wow, that's amazing. So you mentioned um, young artist programs. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time that you were in those kinds of programs, were those intentional uh, diversity and inclusion type programs intended <laughs> to generate more diversity in the traditional arts? Or No. Um, that... Th Quite honestly, you you don't really find uh, intentionality of diversity in a lot of those programs today. There are a few that have that as a goal, but that's not a universally held mission mm -hmm. across young artist programs. What young artist programs were designed to do uh, were to bridge the gap between uh, secondary education, post-secondary education, and professional careers. Mm -hmm. So when I first started, <laughs> there, were, there were maybe uh, two or three 
top tier uh, young artist programs that existed. There was one at the Met, there was one in Houston, there was one in San Francisco. Um, There may have been one or two other ones in the summer, but there weren't year-long residential programs. Houston was one of those uh, with a major opera company. So there was a lot of competition to get into one of those because if you were there, it was a a huge networking um, uh, bonus for you to be able to go from college into a program like that where you actually were working in a professional company. Um, And then from there, of course, you got contacts with professional conductors and Mm -hmm. orchestras and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. So it was really... um, it was really a, a an advantage, a professional advantage, to be a part of companies like that. Right. So, yeah. and who? So, who inspires? I mean, are you? Do you come from a musical family? Yes, I do. Yeah. I I am. There were originally there were originally, my parents had eight biological children, and then when I was a teenager, they adopted three other children. So, wow. I am. I know, right. <laughs> Uh, but we had the house where everybody was always in and out, yeah. in and out of. We were known as the Singing Simpsons. Yes, I love that. <laughs> that that was the official stage name. That was the official name, okay. the Singing Simpsons. Um, and so I was seven out of that original eight that went out singing. We were in the car every weekend. We had a station wagon. And uh, we were in that car every weekend singing up and down the eastern seaboard in Canada. Um, in that car singing every weekend. My two older sisters, because I'm the youngest female, um, my two older sisters, the one right above me, started taking piano lessons when she was about five. Okay. And so she played, and then my next to the oldest sister played the piano as well. So they would play the piano and the rest of them would sing. At a certain point, they would leave my younger brother and I home because we were too young and we'd be behind them conducting and all that sort of thing and the people would be cracking up. (laughs) (laughs) And my father would turn around and we'd be perfectly still. (laughs) He said, I know you two are doing something back there. I know you're up to something. We know you're up to something. So they left us home after a while. Now, Roberta, I know you're having fun, but let let me get one in there. Oh, you can have a question. (laughs) You can have a question. Um, You grew up in Philadelphia. I did. So, so I, I know you were just surrounded by the R&B influence. You know, it's amazing. It was there. Uh-huh. But when I tell you we grew up in church, we grew up in church, under the church, around the church. and What, deno- what denomination were you? So uh, when I was young, we were Baptist. Okay. And then we moved to a Church of God church, Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana. And then when I was in high school, we moved to a Pentecostal church. So R&B was there, but you know, it was when your parents weren't home. Yeah. (laughs) But I I was wondering, when did you um, start to make the transition to the type of music that you specialize in now? Well, that was always a part of our home because my parents Uh loved classical music. Okay, okay. So, you know, the brown wooden cabinet stereo, that was in our house. That was before my time. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let that go. And uh, (laughs) 
you might have had a few of them. You might have seen it at the Smithsonian, but anyway. <laughs> at, the new, at the new museum, the historical museum. Yeah, at the historical museum. Uh, <laughs> But we had that, and we had all, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir albums mm-hmm. and all the Robert Shaw recordings with mm-hmm. Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. These are all the the old albums. Al Hurt, all those people. So we had all of that music playing in our house and the Philadelphia Orchestra mm-hmm. albums playing all the time because my parents really loved classical music. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and so... As a matter of fact, my mother told us the stories about Roland Hayes, the great African-American tenor, used to travel around the country, and he actually came to her town in West Virginia. So my parents had long had a great love for classical music. So that was just a part of our upbringing. Yeah, and I mean, they would be of the generation where classical music meant that you are exposed to solidly middle, black middle class values. I mean, it's an expression of your upward mobility and interests and, yes. Is that what it meant? Well... You know, it was it was a part of the culture. It was a part of She's my a East Coaster. You've got to remember. And my grandmother, what called herself a true alto, mm. and that was her badge of pride. Mm-hmm. Because remember, choral singing uh, was a huge tradition in the church, and in the churches that they went to, singing anthems and classical music was a mark of of being educated. And, uh, Appropriate blackness. Yes. It was very, um, it was a badge of honor because yeah. that meant you could read music. That's right. You know, and that was a skill set that not everyone had. And, and you so, were not hanging out in the cotton club or in the in the streets. And these have, these have cultural dimensions. To I'm, I'm kind of sitting here perplexed because my father loved classical music. Mm-hmm. He was from Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. 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 Uneducated, uh, couldn't read music. He he just loved it. It right. didn't it didn't uh, didn't pass it on to any of his children though. He was he was not formally educated. Right. That's and, and I think there there is a difference. I think between formal education and being educated because my father had to drop out of school in in about this seventh or eighth grade yeah, yeah. because of illness. But he was one of the most educated people That's that right. I knew. I always like yeah. to refer to my father as the most intelligent man. That's in the absolutely right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, this is about you. <laughs> it's never about me. <laughs> <laughs> but you, did, but you did grow. You did come of age in in a place like Philadelphia mm-hmm. and traveling to different places where there it there was a bubbling up right of. Um, issues of um, um, racial pride Mm -hmm. and social justice and, you know, do any of those, did that time, growing up that time, did that influence? Well, it's very interesting because um, my parents, I don't remember them as being, you know, the people that would have been at the march or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but... My, you know, my father told stories about being, because he was in D.C., being on the steps when Marian Anderson sang okay. her concert mm-hmm. down in D.C. Mm-hmm. 
um, he talked about when he was he was a part of the CCC camps, um, which was that uh, colored civilian corps that was it Roosevelt that mm. that uh, established that. I'm going to look. Um, it's like the WPS that oh, that whole okay, system. <clears throat> so we have pictures of him when he was young and a part mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. before he joined the military. Um, what branch? Army. Okay. Um, and so, and all of his brothers were in some part of the military. I mean, that was a part of that their culture and their family. Um, and so, but they had, there were sensibilities, you know. Mm-hmm. So as we traveled, mm-hmm. the interesting thing is that my family sang, because of the type of music that we sang, mm-hmm. we sang predominantly for white churches. Okay. Because we were this black family that did not sing gospel music. We sang classical music. And so, you know, the things that we would face would be really very interesting because we were sort of a novelty. Okay. Singing classical music. Singing classical music. So, and with my mother's voice, very operatic. Okay. And so I can remember being <laughs> over and over and over again in churches, and afterwards people would come up and say, oh, do you want to be Mahalia Jackson when you grow up? And I'm thinking, hmm, that must be your only point of reference because no song did we sing today sound anything like anything that Mahalia Jackson ever sang. And I can also remember being, it's funny this should stick with me because I was very young, but we went to a church and we would always have dinner in somebody's home afterwards and this minister decided he would tell racial jokes afterwards and so he told one joke after another one there was this white man there was this black man and there was this polish guy he told one joke after another none of which i remember being funny Mm. and my parents sat there for a long time didn't say anything and then my mother told this, her joke started off, there was this hillbilly. <laughs> After she got finished telling that joke, the joke stopped. Okay, yeah. because I was going to say there was probably no air in the room. There was no air in the room after that. <laughs> I remember being so proud of her, <laughs> you know? You know, it was just one of those moments. And so... Mm-hmm. But I also, so that's one thing I remember about my parents. The other thing I remember about my parents is that their home was open to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and they had a guest book. And so over the years, everybody that came to the house, and trust me, we had a little row home with all of those people. But we had people from all over the world that came to our house. I mean, literally people from India, people from Africa, people... Uh, our home was always open to everybody. So music was the our entree into the world, but it was also mm-hmm. the thing that brought people to us. Mm-hmm. So even though we, we lived next to the trolley barn, we were not a wealthy family. We were on the lower part of middle class, but the music mm-hmm. opened up a world to us that you know, we we wouldn't have experienced mm-hmm. except for that gift opening the world to wow. us. Yeah. And so a little a little girl 
um, is not a little girl from Philadelphia is not at all intimidated by the auditions and the other rigor that would have come with these these young artist institutes or seminars or well I, yes absolutely because I, I think if you don't realize uh, what I did realize is that that prepared me yes when I was able to say oh yeah this is similar to what I had growing up when you make a, and I I've tried to say this to students that music is music and when you realize that, that storytelling is storytelling, no matter what genre you place it in, when you can make those connections, then it becomes more familiar to you. But initially, when you start to study classical music, you can, you can do a thing where you abandon everything from your past because you don't value what you had in your past. When you can embrace what you have in your past, value it and bring all the lessons that you learned from that to this new uh, to this new way of thinking about what you've been doing all along, then it becomes a different experience and it, it can be more familiar to you. I'm curious about something. Mm-hmm. You said a black family singing classical music in white churches. Mm-hmm. What was the interaction like uh, with the greater black community or was it even something to speak of it was it was interesting um and so you have to realize this is from an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old's perspective i always felt a little bit like are they going to like us because are we going to be black enough yeah even at eight years old you asked that question yes absolutely i asked that question because we weren't we weren't doing Thomas Dorsey. We weren't doing James Cleveland. We weren't doing the Hawkins family. We weren't doing Andre Crouch. We weren't doing anything that would have been more traditionally gospel music. So I always felt like, are we going to be okay? Now, if people invited us, they probably knew what kind of music we were doing. But that was my apprehension going in. I don't think my parents ever felt like that. I don't think my mother ever felt like that in any of the places she ever went because she was somebody who was very comfortable and confident and confident in her gift. Mm. She was very confident in her gift. So my mother went all over the world singing even past the time that we were grown and had stopped singing as a family, she and my father would travel as missionaries singing. And then as after he passed away, she still went out singing. And I've seen my mother sing in um, religious uh, meetings with thousands of people in the room, with famous, very famous people in the room, and my mother get up and sing and not be intimidated at all by whoever else was there because she was confident in not only the gift, but who gave her the gift. Mm. So she never felt like, she never measured herself against somebody else's singing. Um, Have any of the siblings written a memoir or have thought about a memoir? (laughs) 
No, it, it's funny. I, we've we've talked about that, but no. no, no, no. Is Crooked Stick a bit of a memoir of your own? I wouldn't say that it's a memoir, but it Crooked Stick is, in many ways, uh, a, a telling of a story that's universal for for. Uh, for all of us. It felt like in the process of creating this project that we were telling uh, not just my family's stories, but other people's family's stories stories too, yeah. We want to pause here for our listeners and reintroduce Marietta Simpson, who is with us this evening. She is a classically trained vocalist, a mezzo-soprano, who is a faculty person at the IU Jacobs School of Music, and we are so happy that she's here tonight. Why don't we take a break and listen to one of your tracks from Crooked Strick? Yes, Crooked why don't Stick. we? Yeah. <laughs> and so the track that we are going to uh, have queued up here is uh, Ain't That a Ain't That a Good News? Ain't it that good news? <laughs> ain't it that good? See, I'm the young. I'm on the young in, in, the, in the room. I'm so. not going to try it. <laughs> so. Jesus, 
Ain't of that good news from Crooked Stick, Marietta Simpson. Now, you have a co-collaborator on this project. Yes. And so before we kind of get into the project mm-hmm. and its vision and what you were seeking to accomplish, can we can we invoke another superstar that we have among us? He is a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's not in the he's not in the uh, studio to defend himself. <laughs> but I was looking around. You said he's among us. But we are going to invoke him nevertheless. Yeah, Dr. Tyron Cooper. Dr. Tyron Cooper, who yeah. is currently the director of the the, the, the archives of African American music and culture yes. at Indiana University. And if you don't know that that is something that lives at IU in your little hometown here in Bloomington, get to know it. Get to know it. <laughs> in other it. words, that's a bad brother right there. That's a uh, bad yes, brother. Absolutely. Four time Emmy Award winning. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. He's pretty amazing. And it's so funny because we laugh about how we actually met. We have a mutual friend who, um, after I told him I was coming here to IU, he's like, there is a brother there you got to meet, <laughs> Tyron Cooper. Okay, you two are really going to like each other. Uh-huh. And so he had told Tyron the same thing. And you know how it is when people tell you, you're going to love so-and-so, and then you meet so-and-so, and you're like, I don't even know what they were thinking. <laughs> so Tyron and I waited a really, really long time oh. before we looked each other up. And then one day, finally, I had to sing something at my church. And so I called him up and said, would you be interested in coming to play for me for this? Because I figured this is a really low-key thing. So if it don't work out, it's not really any skin off either one of our backs. He came over, took out his guitar, and started tuning. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Magic. This man can play. (laughs) Just by the way he was tuning his guitar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Incredible. I I think that's what you both have in common as somebody who admires both your vocal um, ability and his instrumental ability is... What you have in common is that sacred intentionality that you bring to your gift, uh, thoughtfulness, a never, never bodacious, never sort of um, thinking of your own talents as your own, but truly your talents are from above and for the rest of the world, for, well, the, for the public good. Thank you. Well, it, it's interesting because... You know, you can work with great musicians, mm-hmm. but there, every now and then there will just be something with somebody you work with where you don't even have to speak about something. Mm-hmm. Don't have to translate. You, you don't have to translate. You can just, your your spirits are in sync, sync yeah. with each other. And the only other person I had that kind of connection with was my sister, so when I played with him and we had that, it was crazy. It was totally crazy. So, you know, I am trying to keep up here, but I have another question. Uh-huh. Yes. The uh, <clears throat> that track that we just played. What was the name of it again? Ain't it that good news? Okay. How would you describe that? What 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 kind of musical flavor? Um, we were thinking about. It being in the New Orleans kind of blues kind of feeling. And so um, when we even came to this project, one of the things that was fascinating and scary for me is that 
uh, and and it's and believe me, this is not self-deprecating. But if I have a reputation, it's for being a classical singer, and so a lot of uh, spiritual treatments are for the concert hall and very traditionally done in a in a classical vocalism kind of way. And we did not want that for this project. Mm-hmm. And so this was scary for me to kind of step out of that vein and go more to, to this kind of uh, vocalism, more earthy. And so the whole time I was like, oh, Tyron, I don't know about this. But it, it was completely liberating. This goes back to a style of singing that I did when I was much younger before I started studying uh, oh. classically. Mm-hmm when I had to kind of put this to the side because it's not that you can't do this when you're studying. It's that at a certain point you have to concentrate on one thing. You can do a lot of stuff, but it's just that when you're trying to really refine, at least I found this to be true, you can't do everything at one time. So the entire yeah. CD is the same style of music as that track we just no, heard? E- no, each track is slightly different. Uh-huh. So if you hear Steal Away, it's more in the, uh, you, you'll be, I'll be in a, a upper part of my range, so I don't sing exactly like that. See, that makes me want to listen to it now. Oh, you should absolutely you, you, listen you, you, to you it. You didn't want to listen to it before? Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I had to lay the groundwork. Oh, go. I got you, I got you. <laughs> but all of the... F- all of the songs you would consider traditional Negro spirituals. Yeah, they're all Negro spirituals, yes. So um, there probably are listening audience folk who know exactly what that means when Mm -hmm. we say a traditional Negro spiritual, but Mm -hmm. for those who might not exactly understand, is there a time period or... uh, So um, all of these songs, what that means is that they are all... um, not written by slaves, but they're all, because none of these songs are written. Mm-hmm. They are all from the oral tradition. Okay. And these are all arrangements taken from the oral tradition. Um, what we've done is updated them and put them in different genres. So uh, Ain't It That Good News is more in the blues. The Steel Way is uh, a more classical bent with guitar and voice by itself. But what we tried to do, there, there's actually no piano on this uh, project because that's the more uh, standard way of, of presenting these songs in the concert hall, which is how they came to light to the uh, major classical audiences when composers like William Dawson and, and William Grant Still and Harry T. Burley took them from the oral tradition into the concert hall. That's how the majority of the world came to know this, this folk music. So, um, so yeah, so anyway, so what we've done is taken the oral tradition, added some more contemporary genres to this, but tried to keep the melodies basically in the, in the natural state. So there's not a lot of, there's no riffing and all that on the melodies, but the genres are more contemporary that accompany it. And from your perspective, why does it matter to apply contemporary arrangements on, on, the, on, the, on traditional? Well, it, you know, because these songs can live in, in different formats. And so we've heard them 
it was our idea to add something to them but not take away from the essence of what the songs were um i've i've I've, everybody is, is free to express how they want to artistically. But what spoke to me about this project and about these songs is to take African-American, the African-American experience and tie that to the African-American genres of expression. The more contemporary ones also born out of suffering a lot of them, and add the two together. And I thought that was a really interesting mix, as opposed to uh, taking this these songs of suffering and resilience and all of that and trying to beautify them. And that was not the intention of this project. It was really to try to breathe life into them without taking the essence of what the spirit of the music was. Yeah. So do you feel that uh, like in the the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century and just the incredible explosion of musical artists who did take those songs into um, performance halls with primarily African-American affluent or at mm -hmm. least middle-class audiences. Mm -hmm. And they were, is it a fair statement that they were seeking to beautify that, um, that moment? I mean, to well, define it, to frame well, it. Well, I think what they were trying to do is, is, and I think this is valid, they were trying to say to the world that this music is as valid as any other music, any other folk music. And what had happened is that people were not even aware that the music existed. And they were also, you know, there was so much glorification of minstrel music, but not of folk music, of this folk music. And so to have great voices like Paul Robeson sing Deep River, mm -hmm. I mean, why is that any less valid than Paul Robeson singing a Brahms folk song, right? Brahms wrote his folk music. Paul Robeson singing the folk music of his people is just as elevated uh, 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 ex artistic expression. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really what, what they were trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to the two of you describe the music. Uh, Roberta, do you have a musical background? I don't have a musical background, but I am a black studies. <laughs> I, have I was a, like, okay. you got I a have musical a, language, have, I'll tell you I have, that. <laughs> I have a master's degree in black studies, and yeah. I my, my period is the late 19th century, and okay. I'm thinking about newspapers like the Indianapolis, um, the, the Freeman, and mm -hmm. uh, the World's Fairs, and how it is that black folk are leveraging these spaces and places mm -hmm. to articulate um, a peoplehood, to mm -hmm. legitimize and um, put their stake in the sand right. of you know what it means to be an American mm -hmm. at this time and the ways in which yes music and politics and education 
all the myriad of ways that African Americans participated in civil life were very important. And then, like you said, Marietta, how do you elevate that and say that these African-American ways are just as legitimate and as powerfully um, connected to the American experience as any other um, um, expression from other groups? Right. I want to get this question in before we run out of time. Absolutely. Um, so can you help us to understand what a mezzo-soprano voice professor does at Indiana University? <laughs> can you help me to understand? <laughs> I asked you first. Okay. Well, what a mezzo-soprano uh, voice professor does is pretty similar to what any of the other voice categories do. Um, it, it totally depends on what uh, a person's specialty is. So I'll tell you what this one does. Okay. I teach private voice lessons, okay? So that means that a student will come in and have um, a 50-minute voice lesson. They're never 50 minutes. They're always more, okay? So that's part of my load at IU. I also teach English diction. So that means that I teach students how to take what's on this page on a script or in a score and how to translate that into the international phonetic alphabet, okay? And that means that for every letter that we see on a page, there's a symbol. And for every symbol, there is a sound. And the reason why that's valuable for singers is that when we're going from... uh, one language to the other, sometimes we can speak in that language and sometimes we don't. But if we know how to translate those letters into sounds, it enables us to move from one language to the other easily without being able to actually speak the language, but we can sing in that language. Because if we're able to translate what those sounds are, so I could go to a German song even though I am not fluent in German, I know what each of those symbols, and I know how to read German well enough to know that if I see an H in German, this is the sound for it. So I'm able to transcribe the German language into IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, and therefore I can sing in German and sound like I know what I am. No, it sounds like I can speak German. Now, the other part of that is, of course, I have to look up what those words mean so that I can communicate it effectively, right? Otherwise, it will sound like I am singing like this and da, 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 and there'll be no inflection in the right. words. But, but that's what the International Phonetic Alphabet enables you to do to, for every symbol, there's a sound. And so that's what I'm able to help the students do in English. So I, I'm the one that teaches them in English, and then from there they go to other languages. So. And the other part of that is then lots of service. So I serve on a lot of committees across okay. the university. So music is truly universal. Music is totally universal. It's truly universal. So with Crooked Stick, you mm-hmm. recently brought together the group that put down all of the tracks mm-hmm. um, at the uh, Studio 6 at yes. WTIU. Yeah. Can you share with us a little bit about that, the, uh, the end result of that project being 
something that can be distributed. On, yes. On so uh, the interesting thing is that what you actually saw at that that concert was a bigger group than what is on the oh, CD. Okay. Um, for the CD project, we actually only had three musicians that did double and triple duty. So Dr. Cooper played a million instruments, not not a million, but maybe 20 different sounds on the CD. The uh, brass player played like three or four different instruments, and the percussionist played all the percussion. So in a live concert, of course, you can't do that. So we ended right. up having like eight musicians that were a part of the con- the actual concert. And I said WTIU. Was it WFIU? No, no, no. Oh, it was WTIU. WTIU. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So are some of those musicians that you worked with, those are folk you normally would work with in other this, projects? Well, of course, the pianist was my sister. So oh, yes, okay. I, I've worked <laughs> with her on many projects. <laughs> And one of the guitarists was Dr. Cooper's brother, so it felt like a family affair. And all the other musicians were musicians that Tyron had worked with before. So it it was an amazing group uh, that came together for that concert. And we are looking forward to doing some things in the future together. So It was know. very, very, very moving. It was such a treat to be in the live audience for that. When is that scheduled to uh, be produced? Next and year. Next, next year. year it will, mm-hmm. will come. All right. Is there, um, because the the range of musicians was broader for the live, was there a piece that... Um, uh, surprised you that you liked, like engaging that piece with a broader band. It it kind of surprised you that you were the moved by every part of that mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. was was really moving. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what made the uh, the whole thing a, a different experience is having a live audience there, because in that situation the audience was a part every bit a part of that experience as much as musicians yeah. and i have to say that it's that's not always sometimes you block out the audience because the the vibe that you're getting from the audience yeah. is sometimes off-putting because people are people sometimes today don't realize you can actually see them and so they're doing things and you're thinking you know i'm right here right right so, but this audience was so engaged there was such a flow of energy between the audience and the musicians. And it was so diverse, too. Completely Marietta. diverse. It was, William, it was a c- completely diverse audience. Yes. And which, what I'm going to say next, which is, which is the song that you sang a cappella? Lord, uh, how come me here? I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And I think that's really interesting that such a diverse group of people could plug into such a very vulnerable song. That is a song that uh, my my late sister sang that years ago that was taught to her by a woman who was the first black coach at the Metropolitan Opera, whose father had been the dean of music at Fisk University. Mm-hmm. The song is so powerful, mm-hmm. there is no way to sing that song mm-hmm. and not be affected by it. Are there yeah. are there a few lyrics that you can Yeah, think of it, it basically the song is about someone who says, "Lord, how come me here? I wish I never was born. There's so much evil here." 
There ain't no freedom here. They sold my children away. And there's no way. And then it comes back to, Lord, how come me here? And by the time you get to that, I mean, it's just... You can barely talk. You can barely yeah. breathe. Yeah. I mean, well, breathe. I, I cry easy anyway. So. so do I. And so I can't imagine that I ever make it. I can never make it through that song without crying. Yeah. I mean, a pin. You couldn't hear a pin drop in that room. Yeah. Everybody. It's profound. I mean, it's profound. I mean, really. And so relevant for the moment that we oh my God. are in right now. Yes. Right? Yes. It's, it's not. It's no longer just our enslaved ancestors. No, that's right? the horror of that's, it. That's what's That's the painful. horror of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we have really enjoyed having you um, join us here. Are we going, um, cutting away to an, a final track? Uh, we're asking our our folk or we're closing up the conversation. We really want to have you back again. I'd love to come we back. Would really. So um, this is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana. And we want to say thank you to Marietta Simpson. Thank you. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or you can always visit WFHB News' website at wfhb.org news. I will go, I shall 
heard Marietta Simpson singing Done Made My Vow from the Cricket Stick CD Project. This project was produced by Professor Tyron Cooper. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or you can always visit WFHB News' website at wfhb.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm William Hosea. And uh, our first story, an African-American woman who was named publisher and editor of the Alabama newspaper that recently urged the KKK to night ride again has stepped down. CNN just posted that citing what she said was continuous and damaging interference by the paper's owner, Alicia R. Dexter, who took over the troubled Democrat reporter of Linden last month told CNN that she left the weekly newspaper because she could no longer work with owner and former editor and publisher Goodloe Sutton. He penned a staggering editorial with the headline, The Klan Needs to Write Again, in February of this year. Dexter replaced Sutton. Dexter's family has strong roots and a rich history in Marengo County, where her dad, John Dexter Jr., was born, the newspaper early announced when she began. Sutton's editorial sparked outrage around the country. Time for the KKK to night ride again, Sutton wrote. Democrats in the Republican Party, Democrats and the Republican Party and Democrats are plotting to raise taxes in Alabama. Sutton told the Montgomery Advertiser he urged the white supremacist group to clean out D.C. via lynchings. We'll get the hemp ropes out, loop them over a tall limb, and hang all of them, Sutton told the newspaper. He stressed that he wasn't calling for the hangings of all Americans, just the socialist communists. Seems like the Klan would be welcome to raid the gated communities up there, Sutton wrote in the editorial. Beginning in the late 19th century, Klan members used night riots to terrorize blacks and their white allies with violence, including lynchings and firebombings. When asked by the advertiser if he recognized the Klan as a white supremacist group, Sutton compared it to the NAACP and said the Klan wasn't violent until they needed to be. Well, William, some people, right? Some people. I mean, and uh, 
I'm I'm very disappointed again in the discretion that some teachers have used. Uh, the Associated Press um, out, has reported that in Wilmington, North Carolina, a, a, a slavery themed game played at a North Carolina elementary school during Black History Month has prompted an investigation. News outlets report the new Hanover County Board of Education released a statement Monday saying that using a game to teach about slavery was inappropriate. A fourth grade teacher had students at Coddington Elementary play a role-playing game called Escaping Slavery, revolving around the Underground Railroad. According to WECT-TV, the game included a freedom punch card that would send teams that had accrued too many penalties back to the plantation to work as a slave. The statement says that the board understands the lesson's purpose and teachers didn't attend, didn't intend to downplay or trivialize slavery. Schools spokeswoman Valida Quattlebaum says no personnel have been penalized. Nonetheless, the board has requested a report from the superintendent. They never intend to offend anyone, but how could you be so brain dead you know, when 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 it uh, insensitive when it comes to an it's, issue, it's like it's very insensitive. I mean, you could argue on the one hand that there are programs. I mean, very complex um, and well funded programs in museums um, at the that have uh, an experience, an underground railroad experience but what makes this different is this idea of a punch card and if you uh, have too many penalties you get sent back that isn't congruent with some of the innovative experiential um, programming that's happening at museums around the United States that highlight what the experience was for enslaved people you know that follows another story that of uh a similar incident that happened in New York just a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Anyhow, mm. once sanctuaries, houses of worship struggle with security, a rabbi who packs a gun, a church installing security cameras, a police car protecting a mosque, houses of worship have, have traditionally been places of refuge where strangers are welcome. But high-profile attacks in recent years on an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, a synagogue in Pittsburgh, and new mosques in New Zealand have made many worshipers and their prayer leaders rethink how protected sanctuaries really are. People are fearful for their lives, for their houses of worship, for the sanctuary of this mosque and other places of worship, like the synagogues and African-American churches that are being attacked. People are concerned, said Imam Muhammad Hakim while attending Friday prayers at the Islamic Center of Detroit. He spoke after a horrifying attack in New Zealand left 50 people dead at two mosques during mid midday prayers. A 28-year-old Australian is the main suspect and called himself in a manifesto, a white nationalist out to avenge attacks in Europe by Muslims. 
History shows sanctuaries are not, are not immune from violence, as illustrated by bombings at African-American churches during the Civil Rights era. And in countries struggling with sectarian violence, attacks on houses of worship are much more frequent. But for countries at peace, the attacks are much rarer. Oh, by the way, he identifies with your, your president. And that was a look at African-American headline news for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Please send your comments to Bring It On at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. Our thanks to mezzo-soprano and Indiana University Jacobs School of Music professor Marietta Simpson for joining us this evening to discuss her recent CD project, Crooked Stick, along with Tyron Cooper. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Tonight's board engineer was Chatel LaFontante. Chantel, excuse me. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Roberta Radovich. Tune in next Monday, March 25th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs> You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bring it at wfhb.org.